papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the issues of the day. Uh, the issues involving journalists of the day and what's going on in the media world. Dr. Alan Shartak is here, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio himself. And very appreciative of your being here, Mr. Rex Smith. Thank you, Alan. I'm grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> Rex hasn't been here in a few weeks. I thought been, he lost the directions. I've been traveling far, far away. Ira Fussfeld, the former publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston. Nice New York. to see you. We've made the show an hour while you were gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll talk slower then. Judy Patrick is here, the former editor of the Daily Gazette, vice president of the New York Press Association. I'm glad to be here as well. Well, that's good. We're really glad you're here because you're the one person we can all tolerate here. She tried to be sincere, and she wasn't very much more sincere than we were. <laughs> it's great. I've been off in Alaska. I've been oh. up there in the face of glaciers and looking at brown bears and everything. Was so, it cold up there? It was cold, yeah. Wow. Did you see Russia? No, no, I did not get that far. I'm afraid I didn't. I didn't even see Governor Palin. I'm so, so sorry. You know, the great attraction, the wildlife of Alaska. In any case, actually, I'll tell you, being in an old growth forest with trees that are hundreds of years old makes you think about, among other things, when you get back and think about it, the complexity of a lot of the stories we have to tell. And, you know, we're in the midst of this environmental, this climate crisis, which is truly a complex story. We've got in the West, for example, the worst drought in 1,200 years. And the next moisture period is so far out in the future that you might as well say never. And yet that story and the story also of immigration and what's going on at the border, these are issues that are tremendously important. Immigration being the issue that Republicans are hoping to ride to the majority in Congress. These issues are complex enough that they're hard for journalists to deal mm. with. You know, a lot of journalism is pretty easy. Car runs into a tree, you write about the damage, you write about who's injured, and that's just reporting the facts. But some of these things have a lot of policy implications that are difficult to convey and not easily interpreted as he said, she said, right? Right. And one of the things that I'm always thinking is the psychological component of what we put out on our mass media. Here's a principle. People don't like other people, period. <laughs> they don't want anybody coming in on their turf. And so if you're an editor and you get that, if you're the editor, for example, of the Schenectady paper, which I used to refer to as the Schenectady Gazette. Correctly known as the Daily Gazette. The Daily Gazette, Well, right. you used to call it the Independent Gazette because the slogan was the independent the voice of, of the, the capital Cal. You see, we yeah, did, the slogan and, worked. And the two great competitors are just duking it out over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on the other end of the, the head of the Times Union. And, the, the, and your point was? Yes. Yeah, there was a point, and I know there was a point. But well, it was so long ago that I just forgot it. Well, Rex, are you suggesting point. that the complexity of the issue, which is undeniable, is not being given? 
given its due by the media or it's just an impossible task for the media to get that across to the reading public? I think the latter. I think it's really difficult. I heard a wonderful story in NPR that dealt with water levels of the Colorado River and, you know, how mm. this is really. But, you know, you can say that story over and over and over again. Won't and, change the water level. And it won't seemingly change what's going on in Congress, right? Our job becomes one of not only explanatory journalism, but almost advocacy journalism. Because if you don't advocate for climate, if you don't advocate for justice on the border, what are you going to do? Well, I would suggest that the larger newspapers, which are I'm more interested in than broadcast, but, but the larger broadcast entities have, in fact, tackled this issue and have attempted to do it in great depth. New York Times has had a lot of full-page or more stories with charts and bells and all the good stuff, but they're the best ones who are suited to do it. And I have a feeling that the readership of the New York Times, for an example, is interested and engaged and many people who are not don't miss the coverage or wouldn't read the coverage even if it was there if i were you ira i hate to coach you but i would always say something like some of the readership yes of the New York i thought i said that but yes no, you some. said the readership and that would include all the people sitting in this room and i don't think that's a good assessment so i think we need policy changes and law changes and and grand changes that, that aren't going to happen at the local level but I think you can get a grassroots support for it with local stories. The problem, however, is covering immigration at the local level. And then something as practical as not being able to speak Spanish. Most reporters don't speak Spanish. Newspapers and television stations and radio stations don't have the ability to have a diversified employee base that speaks Spanish. So how do you get those stories? I remember when I was a reporter writing a story about migrants who were employed by dairy farms up here. And because it was a really important way to keep those dairy farms going, because the dairy farmers had a hard time finding local people to work those hours. But I didn't speak Spanish, and so I had to rely on the farmer to interpret, and I'm not sure I got an accurate interview of uh -huh. what was happening. And so language is a big barrier for local papers covering immigration. You know, and the difficulty, I think, too, is that politicians and pundits tend to dumb it all down, to just put it into sloganeering. Immigration is a great example. In the late 80s, I mean, I reported on the Immigration Reform Act of 1986. In the spring of 87, I remember going down to the Rio Grande Valley and interviewing shrimp boaters and so on who hired immigrants, farmers. And the stories are the same. It's the same problem that we were looking at. How many years ago was that? It's a generation ago. And instead, we just have the politicians talking about, well, we got to close down the border. we got to get tougher here, which is not an adequate response to the complexity of the issues that we face. But how do you get that across without being seemingly biased against political figures? And why do you want to get it across? I mean, the problem here, of course, Rex, and you know this as well as I, that there are an awful lot of people who have just a visceral, complete objection to, quote, others. And so if you're an editor of a paper, you're aware of that. And maybe you go with it. I know that the three of you will defend yourselves because you were in those positions all of these years. But we know full well that you're not good people. And that, um, <laughs> and, and, I, you and, know, and I hate to correct you, but you could say some. <laughs> 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 well point. You know, PBS is airing a documentary by Ken Burns. Wait, wait. Is it documentary or documentary? <laughs> Whatever. Oh, well, I have never either. understood I, that's why, why you people do that. in print. But it is about the anti-Semitism that fueled the restrictions on immigration back in the 30s and 40s, which led to a lot of Jewish people who were trying to escape Nazi Germany or Nazi Europe couldn't get into this country. So this is a problem we've dealt with for years. 
even history, looking back, doesn't educate us. We don't seem to have learned that lesson, but maybe a documentary like that will... You can say documentary if you like. (laughs) ...will open some eyes. I don't think it will. I've kind of given up on people being willing to accept others or to understand that they themselves come from immigrants as well. Well, the question uh, that I would have is how many hurricanes, how many natural disasters need to occur and the kind that impact people's everyday lives when they don't have drinking water and they don't have electricity. How many of those events will have to happen before it will dawn on people who do not believe or do not understand what climate change is that this is worth addressing it? Many believe it's already too late. I don't necessarily think that, but they've got to come to that realization pretty soon. And to go back to this being a media show, I think the large media outlets, by and large, have attempted to do it. And you can't do much more than that short of hitting them on the head with the newspaper rolled up. What do you do, though, if you're covering a politician who refuses to do anything about climate change? And if you're a journalist who is well aware of the science, who knows what's going on, and yet you have the politician saying, well, we can't do this because so-and-so. You can't fight the coal industry. Coal is an important part of our future. Well, coal is killing us, folks. And we need to be blunt and clear about that. But journalism, by trying to be fair to everybody, gives license to the liars and those who would cover up the reality. It's very difficult, I think, for journalists. Big problem. And the same thing is true of immigration. You know, we were very close a dozen years ago. Remember the gang of eight in the U.S. Senate, four Republicans and four Democrats, including Marco Rubio of Florida, who came up with an immigration reform package that was a bipartisan effort that could have made a difference. And suddenly the right wing of the Republican Party responding to the election of the Tea Party folks, was that about 2010, I think, decided that that had to get blown up and they blew up the compromise. And this issue has not gotten anywhere ever since. You remember, Alan, when Mario Cuomo used to talk about the death penalty, he was being blasted for opposing the death penalty. And he said Republicans will never do anything about it because they'd rather have the issue than have a solution. And some people say that about him, too, that he would rather have the issue uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. than uh-huh. to have a solution. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the coverage of the shipping of migrants to Cape Cod by mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis? Did the media do a good job of covering that, of raising the issues that created that situation, or was it slanted one way or the other? Well, Judy, what do you think? I listened to it from a variety of perspectives, and it seemed the initial coverage seemed to be very sentimental. It took a day or so for us to understand that these people were misled and how it was funded. That's the kind of real in-depth, practical, hard-hitting information that I think will inform what you think about this. I thought eventually the coverage was good, but I think we need to do a broader examination of what's going on at the border and how we help get people into this country in a fair way. Even covering immigration courts is a nightmare. Courts move so slowly, access is limited. So immigration is a horrible quagmire. We need to do more to cover it, but the system itself doesn't allow for it. The difficulty, too, is that the viewers of Fox News are not getting any of that coverage that you're talking about that eventually got to the meat of it, right? Well, what they're getting is indirect coverage. They're not covering the event. They're covering the reaction to the event. So that their spin is, look, the liberals are all upset now about these migrants coming to their shores, but they weren't upset when these migrants were crossing the borders to Texas or wherever. And so they've turned it around again to an us versus them. And the the, the immigrants, is my, migrants correct or immigrants, they're, they're lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. 
it's a complex issue that if I were a journalist on a beat, I would be pushing my editors to say, you need to put me front and center in our newscast or on our front page almost every day. But then, you know, there are so many stories that rise. It seems as though there's so many big stories these days that it's very hard if you're the executive producer of a newscast or if you're the editor of a newspaper. How do you decide what gets priority coverage so that people pay attention? And how do you shape it is what we're talking about. Well, I, I had a suggestion about two weeks ago, which is not to cover the queen as much as it was being covered. I know you guys discussed this last week, but I was just shocked. I know shocked is the wrong word. You needed to cover the the funeral and fine they train the cameras on the funeral but the endless panel discussions the amount of talent that was shipped over to England where I was shocked I'm watching NBC and long after the funeral was over there was a three shot of Katie Turr, Andrea Mitchell, and Chris Chansing, the former Chris Kapistashi, all doing their panel shows in front of Westminster Abbey. Why? Why did NBC spend that money? <laughs> and then and they, the were, they were did almost the same. crying at the end, too. They held hands oh, and were almost I, I saw that. Yeah, they held hands as the sisters. Yeah, I would argue they're spending way too much time on Trump, also. Yeah, at least that's an American story. This is a British story of worldwide interest, but not to be overkilled. No pun intended, to the late queen. I want to push back on Judy's comment on Trump. <laughs> you think that Trump is not being overcovered? No. I think Trump offered the possibility that he would lead this country into anti-democratic posture. And if he had his way, we would no longer be what we have been so proud of being up to now. So therefore, I see Judy is ready to pounce. I am. Let me back up, get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so therefore, I think Trump is a hell of a continuing story, and we should continue to do it because he offers such a threat to this country. Well, that's true. But covering every twist and turn of his legal problems ad nauseum at the expense of covering perhaps the efforts to install people who are in charge of elections at the state level to do the real serious damage, they're neglecting some of the bigger stories. They're neglecting the real story oftentimes because, you know, don't talk to me for hours and hours about whether he's possibly going to be indicted. You can maybe talk about it for half an hour, but then go on to something else. I know why they do it. It gets the reader response. Gets, why does it get such a response? Because he's a celebrity. He's a fascinating person to watch, I guess. And trying to understand hard news is more of a mental challenge for people. But there are a lot of really important stories. I mean, we're so focused on what's happening with Trump that we're neglecting what's happening in Puerto Rico, which is our country. Well, first of all, I think you go a step too far. I can tell you that we here at... You're uh, being defensive. <laughs> we here at WAMC have played, and as NPR has, played huh. the story on Puerto Rico again and again and again. And I happen to have been, the, I believe, the first youth ambassador to Puerto Rico defensive. from the West Side. Oh, boy, oh, youth ambassador? <laughs> you yes, were a youth ambassador? I was. Were they, were so, they a territory? It was a, long, it was a long time ago. Wow. Why are the I three didn't of you? know that they had discovered the Puerto Rico when you were youth. Why are the three of you so jealous that you have to laugh? Sorry. Well, well in any case. Or Fire I, Island. I, <laughs> Just southeast of Fire Island. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's very impressive. But uh, <laughs> to Alan's point, actually, I thought what Alan was going to say was that— I was until you interrupted me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm going to help you out here, buddy. It's because people care about humans. That is, stories that are told about human beings, in this case Donald Trump, people understand 
people. Uh, I remember uh, somebody who really had an impact on my career saying to me at one point when I said I was going to write about politics, saying to me, Rex, write about people, not about politics. Even if you're writing about politics, do it about the people who are engaged. And, you know, it was great advice, obviously. If you're writing about the state budget, write about how the impact of the state budget is felt by individuals in the state. And Trump, you know, gives us a window we can see. You you see this personality. But I share the frustration that we are fixated on the guy. But it is kind of the big issue of the day, the potential loss of American democracy. I couldn't agree with you more because if he has his way, this country is going to be a very different place. And we know it. And you say the loss of American democracy. I say that. And I, I mean it. It's very, very scary. But, yeah. but fixating on Trump is not the only thing that the, the media should be doing. It's well, who more says than we Trump. Are? It's more than Trump. Well, well, I think we have to be, again, I've said this here before, we have to separate between print journalism and broadcast journalism, and in particular cable news coverage, which tends to get fixated with the subject and goes wall to wall on it. Whereas the New York Times, I'll use them and again as the, as the other side, they are covering Trump. They're covering climate change. They're covering all of these things. But the vehicle is such that you can get eight stories on the front page. And if you're not interested in one, you go to one of the others. The, the that very is the na- beauty of print, isn't it? Though? Uh, it's, well, but the very nature of broadcast. If MSNBC decides to do Trump all the time, that means they're not covering anything besides right. Trump. Or but the Queen, have, to your point about the right, but they have no alternative. They've only got one signal that well, they have maybe a couple plus online, but they're fixated on one subject. And there are these institutional stories that have impact on this that are really hard to deal with. Like, for example, the one that I wanted us to talk about today is the Attorney General of Florida wants the Supreme Court to decide whether states have the right to regulate how social media companies moderate content on their services. Now, this sounds like blah, 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 how social media companies moderate content, but this goes to the question of whether YouTube and Facebook and Twitter can block certain types of political speech, uh, including stuff that is flat out false. These are private companies. Do they have the right to moderate content? Uh, A lot of the folks on the right wing are saying they're doing it to shut down right wing commentary. After all, Twitter banned Donald Trump because of his lies. And so this actually becomes a huge story in terms of how we're going to interact with each other, what kind of information gets out out there. But boy, explaining that to people is pretty tough. Well, you know, Rex, you're right, of course. But there have been many instances in which major news organizations have not given the weight, the gravitas to major stories because they just don't think that they rise to the top. So once you start to do that, you have created this big problem which is that the news is going to be moderated by the people who control it. Which is appropriate, I think. But isn't it part of the heart of this issue whether or not the social media companies are going to be defined as publishers? Yeah. Exactly. Because publishers do this all the time, including newspapers. You choose which letters to the editor you want to run, and that's perfectly appropriate. It's your right to do it. The social media company just lets everything out, and are they publishers? If so, then they should be protected. Right. This is a First Amendment issue for publishers. Publishers should be able to decide what they want to say and who they want to have say it. I am a big supporter of the social media companies being able to control their own platforms. 
And that being said, if you look at what's trending on any of these platforms on any day, it's always right-wing information. That content rises to the top all the time. They will make the argument that the social media companies are skewed against them, but they're not. I think the one issue that they're concerned about is when they get deplatformed or demonetized and then they can't make money off of their memes or their sites. But in general, I see tons of right-wing conservative content, far more of that than liberal on my algorithm. Maybe it says something about my, my <laughs> reading habits. But again, if you look at the statistics day in and day out, that content is at the very top. It always dominates the day's news. Being interested there in will language. be a lot of people listening to this who think you're dead wrong, that well, it's quite the other way Just check around. out Google Trends, Facebook Trends any week, and you'll see Dan Bongiorno and Sean Hannity. They're right at the very top. I like the fact that you just used the word demonetize. I thought that was really pretty <laughs> impressive. That, uh, uh, that's sorry. actually a problem that uh, a lot of the media are having these days. They're being demonetized and not having to do with demonized. But this lawsuit has legs. This could be a very serious development as it goes along in the conservative courtrooms. Well, it's going to go to the Supreme Court because you have two federal circuits in conflict, Texas and Florida, where courts of appeals have held differently as to whether these social media giants have the right to regulate regulate their content, or I guess whether they're so special in their status and their breadth that they have to be treated as sort of the, the commons, like the public square where you have to allow all points of view. It reminds me a little bit of the Fairness Doctrine back in the day where broadcast entities had to broadcast both sides because they were using the public airways, so mm. to speak. That went away during the Reagan administration, but, I mean, I think they aired the opposing viewpoints at 4 o'clock in the morning. Well, there are always those who think that the fairness doctrine worked. I don't. The problem is that if you have to give the other side, it forces you into a position that you really don't want to be in as a publisher or an editor of the job you guys all had. You, know, you understand it, what I'm talking about? It, yes. Yeah. It works pretty well in public broadcasting, it seems to me. Every time I say something critical <laughs> about you people. <laughs> no, I was, I was when, actually going to say something nice. actually shows up, he will um, <laughs> you know, say, say something, something like nice. That. I don't even know what he's saying now. <laughs> I forgot. I, I'm not going to say it anymore. He said it worked anymore. really well for you. In yeah. Radio. Fairness doctrine, it never did and never will. Because what happens is as soon as you say something X, the opponents of what you're saying will come up and say, you violated the fairness doctrine. I have never been a big fan of the fairness Well, if you gave a half hour to a Democratic candidate and then a half hour to the Republican challenger. Which we do all the time. Then would you have to give a half hour to every Jack and Jill who that, also run? That is a big question. Yeah. Which is why when I say public broadcasting, actually works pretty well because ah, you're always picking on <laughs> you because you are benefiting from the largesse of taxpayers you feel a responsibility there is a certain essential value that you have to deliver right and yet you make judgments here at WAMC about what you're going to air and what you're not but you are licensed to operate as a public benefit and maybe that's the answer is to say in the world of journalism not-for-profit means you have to produce a certain amount of content that is of value, but it gives you the leeway to make judgments about what is newsworthy and what isn't. That's a great idea, Rex, and I have a proposal. What's that? I think we should make Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union of Albany, New York, into the judge who decides what's appropriate and what's not. Well, I'm comfortable with that role. Uh, <laughs> but let's, let's face it, seriously, this particular broadcasting company has, what, seven states you're in? You've got myriad races. Yes, and that's if you, true. And you're trying to cover as many of them as you can. And if you were 
pick a small race somewhere in Plattsburgh there where there may be eight candidates. Do you want to turn your entire network over to a half hour to each of the eight candidates and then multiply that by a small community in Sullivan County or it, whatever? It, it is a big issue, and we hear from people all the time, I don't really want to hear what's going on up there on the Canadian border. I mean, people will say that. But we think if there's something of interest and if there's a particularly dynamic contest, that we should cover it. But I'm trying to help you out here. You don't. Well, don't. Want, you don't want to try to get every every small race in your community shouldn't have to be covered. No, but the people who are in that race think so. I think my point was lost. I think your point was made. Yeah. That two or three people in the race are interested. So. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Well, this is why it's the economics that has led to this. You know, the signals that WAMC uses used to be little local. Stations where they all had their little local anchors and, and so on, and those people don't. Th- that economics doesn't work yeah. anymore. There isn't enough advertising support for those stations to exist, and so the signals gradually got consolidated. And so it, you do the best you can under the circumstances, but it's just like the number of small weeklies that have gone out of business, right, Judy? We've lost a lot, haven't we? Yeah, we, we haven't lost a tremendous number in New York, but we have lost a few. Uh, there's an interesting story up in Watertown where the Johnson newspapers have decided to bring back two of the weeklies that they discontinued a few years ago because the people in those communities said, we miss our local paper. They were getting the Watertown Daily Times, but that wasn't what they needed or wanted. And so Johnson has brought back these two weeklies and they've found great success among the subscribers, the advertisers in the schools and hospitals in those communities. It's a story about people want their local paper, even though, you know, sometimes the economics aren't there. Well, good luck to them getting the advertising revenue to support those if they're talking about a print publication. They are so far so good. <laughs> Good luck. This is the Media Project. If you have thoughts on all of this, I it was suggested to you. Media at wamc.org is another how half you can hour to go. Share your. <laughs> you this show should be an hour. You know, one of the problems with the social media platforms are they're not public benefit corporations. They're private companies. They're trying to make a lot of money, and when they promote right-wing content or they promote divisive content, they get more clicks, they get more advertising money. And so that's something the Supreme Court's going to either have to, if it reaches that level, they're going to have to really make a hard decision about, you know, they tend to view private corporations as people with their ability to exercise their First Amendment. So. Well, but they're going to have to decide if YouTube, using them as an example, is a publisher and belong and deserves the same protections that the traditional publishers have observed. Well, it actually doesn't go partly to the problem in America that we value corporations entirely based upon the bottom line, except for a few companies that are B Corps, like Warby Parker for glasses frames or Patagonia. These are companies that actually have as part of their charter, not just profit but also public benefits. So if you could redefine these massive tech companies that make a lot of money off their platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, as having a responsibility not just to shareholders, but also to consumers and to employees, to the society at large, then I think that helps you to define what their responsibility is. Anyway, that's oh, big no, stuff. I hope that you're not leading up to ending the show. <laughs> 
What a show. <laughs> what a show. What a show, ladies and gentlemen. It's the end of the Media Project for another week, and we're so grateful that you took time to join us. Alan Shartok has been here. Ira. I'm particularly grateful that you're here. Why, thank Rexman. you, Alan. It's very kind of you. And I'm glad that I came back from the wilds of Alaska to see you all. That hat that you're wearing would be very good in Alaska, Alan. People would say, boy, he's keeping his head warm. Ira Fussfeld, <laughs> Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude especially to our producer, David Costina. Thanks, folks, for listening to The Media Project. 